This episode of Songwriter Stories is sponsored by Piano Wars. Piano Wars offers unique, high-energy entertainment featuring dueling pianos, sing-along, audience participation, and dance music. Find out more at pianowars.com. This is Walter Egan, and you're listening to Songwriter Stories with Dave Caruso. At the heart of Walter Egan's lifelong songwriting career is an endearing and enduring song but has played a substantial role in cementing his stardom for all time. That song is Magnet and Steel. In our interview, Walter shares stories about his ongoing pursuit to write and record what he calls genuine melodic songs with a beat, and we grapple with what makes Magnet and Steel so ageless and perennial. Walter Egan, welcome to Songwriter Stories. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be here. I have uh, admired your work and uh, happy to be a part of it. You've recorded a lot of original music over the years, but you were writing songs long before you got your multi-album Columbia Records contract. How did all that start? I got my first guitar when I was 15, and, and instead of doing scales, I started writing songs. And I happened to have a friend named John Zambetti, who also was uh, starting out writing songs at that time. And uh, we used to be one another's best audience. You know, he would write a song and come to school the next day and play it for me. And I'd get excited and I'd go, well, I better write one and I'll go home and write one. And and, uh, we kind of had that symbiotic relationship going through most of our high school years. John said, uh, if you get an electric guitar, you can be in the band. And he had a band called the Malibus. And we were in New York City, of course, and the Malibus were a uh, you know, California-oriented surf kind of band. We did do a British invasion as well once I got in there. And so, uh, you know, it was a typical high school band, except, you know, we were trying to write songs and we had uh, made a few recordings uh, as we were juniors and seniors in high school. You had six albums with them, right? Um, With the Malibus, yeah. We are about to release another one. It's the uh, QE2, as John called it. The last one was called Queen's English because it was our tribute, basically, to the British invasion band that inspired us.
moved out of New York. I went to Georgetown University. The band, the Malibus, turned into a band called Stageworth, and uh, we got very close to a deal. I graduated from college in 1970, and so um, this was postgraduate work that we did here, and then we moved to Boston. We had met Linda Ronstadt and her band as they came into town, into Georgetown, to uh, to do a, a week at the Cellar Door, which was a club there at that time. And uh, they came in to have dinner at the uh, the bar across the street where we were playing and invited us to come and join them. Linda was a real sweetheart, and uh, her band consisted of, uh, among others, Don Henley and Glenn Fry. So we kind of got to meet them at that point. And Chris Darrow was the important member of the band. He was the road manager, and also he played violin and uh, mandolin on a few of her songs and he really liked our band and he wanted to bring us to LA to to record and have him produce us and that was where the uh, the split came in the band where half of the band thought that was a great idea and the other half thought it was too risky and so we had uh, just done a few gigs up in New England and thought well there's a lot of a lot of work in New England why don't we move up there so we moved up to Boston and continued to uh, try to court the, the labels at that point. We did a show with Poco in those days, and Jim Messina was in, in the band. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, of course, on his Fender, whatever it was, it might have been a twin, it might have been a, a different a Vibrolux or something, he had Buffalo Springfield stenciled on the back of it. And mm-hmm. To us, that was this relic, and, this, and so you know we'd run our hands along it. <laughs> And he uh, he liked our band too. He invited us to come to to New York City to do a uh, do an audition, basically at the Columbia Studios. And that was in '71, I guess. And uh, the, you know that was our first real audition type of thing, and it it uh, it just was uh, a little bit too nerve wracking for us, I think, at the time. And we we were very stiff, and yeah, we were you know, naive about things. We had done some recording of, of our own, but uh, we didn't uh, pass that audition. It was a, an excellent band. You know, I had written most of the songs, and I had three people who I thought were great singers singing in the band, especially Annie McClune, who was the lead singer. A couple of guys, John Borger and Jack Burkhart were the other singers. We patterned ourselves on, the, you know, Buffalo Springfield and Jefferson Airplane. And so people would say, what's your sound? And oh, we have the Jeffalo Springplane sound. And, uh, <laughs> that was uh, how we kind of pursued it in those days.
at one point, Paul Colby at the bitter end heard us and he wanted to manage us. And so he brought us in to the bitter end for a week in February of 72, where we would be a 15 minute opening act with a, the middle act was Jackson Brown promoting his first album. And then the headliner was Sandy Denny and Richard Thompson. And so that was a, quite an enlightening uh, week for us, hanging out with Jackson and just watching Richard Thompson play guitar. In fact, Bob Dylan was there one night and I got to meet him. And, uh, you know, Sweet. Uh, that was enigmatic at best. <laughs> it was, you know, you know, so I met him and he was nice. Said, oh, okay, thanks. Thanks, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but um, I've always considered myself a songwriter primarily. And that's, you know, why especially I like your website here and what you do. When I went to Georgetown, I went there to be a journalism major and to be a writer. I was inspired by Fitzgerald. I was inspired by Ferlinghetti. I was inspired by, you know, a lot of writers. And during that time, I uh, came to the conclusion that uh, I could be a writer no matter what uh, courses I take. Playing around Georgetown was a nice kind of small town feeling. In, and, and D.C., of course, is a big enough city, but the Georgetown area is kind of self-contained in a lot of ways. There was a woman named Esther Mae Scott, Mama Scott, and she was this old blues singer who was about to do a record produced by a guy named Tom Zito, who eventually was writing for the Washington Post. But he also graduated in my class at Georgetown. And so he uh, had heard a song of mine called Come to Me, and he thought it would be great for uh, for Mama Scott to do. And so that technically was my first breakthrough song, was this song called Come to Me, recorded by Esther Mae Scott. So, you know, and I felt like, well, this is good. I can do this. You know, I can have some success. When the rain keeps up falling and they fall Georgetown, we were playing in the same circuit as uh, Emmylou Harris. And this was before Emmylou had her epiphany about country music. She was more of a folk singer. And uh, she was playing one night at Clyde's Club there on Georgetown's um, M Street. And Chris Hillman, who uh, was still playing in the Flying Burrito Brothers at the time, came in and saw her and asked her if she would be interested in singing with a friend of his who was about to do an album. And that friend was Graham Parsons. And uh, Emmy didn't know who Graham was at the time. So I, uh, I took her home because I, I was very aware of Graham because he had uh, 
hijacked my favorite band, The Birds, and turned them into a country band, which in the late 60s, you know, the rednecks were on one end and the hippies on the other, and they didn't really meet too well in the middle. And suddenly there was this rock band doing country music, and it was like, well, are they kidding? No, they're not kidding. They're serious. And so, you know, you start to become aware of what the, the power of country music and the soul that has uh, imbued it to. And so um, after I played the Gilded Palace of Sin and Sweetheart of the Rodeo for her, she, uh, you know, agreed to have Graham come to town. And Graham came, I guess, a day or so later. And they needed a place where they could uh, try out their harmonies with one another. And I offered the kitchen at Sageworth House, as we called it, the house where our band lived. And uh, so when Graham and Emmy sang together for the first time, I was the audience, basically. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and to me, Graham was uh, represented uh, an attainable goal of being in the music business. And, and he had a great charisma and he was a really nice guy, especially when he was sober. And uh, he, uh, you know, he pointed me in the direction uh, I said, well, Graham, I want to get into country music. What should I do? Well, you got to listen to George Jones and Merle Haggard and Harlan Howard and Charlie Pride. Those are the names he gave me. But um, when Emmy and Graham went on to record together, they eventually recorded a song of mine called Hearts on Fire, which uh, was really my first breakthrough. And that was on the Grievous Angel album which, of course, was the posthumous album for Graham. Yeah, it's a tough cut to get anymore, as they say here in Jordan, Nashville. Once you're here, our love had burned Until at last, I guess you learned The art of being untrue was my claim to fame and when I moved to California after Sageworth broke up uh, that was my calling card and I took Chris Darrow at his invitation thinking I was moving to LA but I was actually moving to a place called Claremont which is about 40 miles east of LA where uh, Chris lived and also Frank Record a great guitar player and David Lindley and you know it was there were like four or five colleges right in that vicinity and so it was uh, kind of a nice place to be. I think the farther away you get from California, the more mythical it becomes. And, and having grown up in New York and loving the Beach Boys and loving the beach party movies and all of that stuff, and then the country rock that came in later. You know, I was living the dream there for the first six months. I, you know, every day I was like, I can't believe I'm here. And then the way that it uh, evolved, 
Chris had planned to do a tour of the United Kingdom, but United Artists withdrew their tour support. And this was two weeks before he was supposed to leave on this tour. And he asked me if I wanted to be his band. And even though I had just moved to California two weeks earlier, he, he, uh, you know, he said, well, come on, it'll be good. I said, okay. So I got turned around and, and spent a month in England with him, which uh, ultimately led me to meet the people who would sign me later on. Andrew Lauder, who was working at United Artists at that time, was Chris's A&R guy over there. And a couple of years later, when he came to L.A., my band was playing a hoot night at the Troubadour, and uh, he was there, and he offered me a deal out of that. And so, you, you know, you just never know what's going to be behind the next door in this music business. You know, you, the uh, cliche is, you know, you play every gig as if, you know, the the person who's going to be the most important to you is in the audience. And, you know, most of the time you can do that because if you love doing it, it's nothing more fun than getting up and playing music. But, um it is that one of those cliches that is based in truth, you know, and I, we did this gig and, you know, six out of the seven songs we performed were written by me, but all but one of them was sung by one of the other guys in the band. Through all of this time, I had this feeling that I was not as good a singer as anybody who I was working with. And so after he offered me the deal, I went, well, well, you mean you want me to sing? Oh, wonderful. Were you thinking that maybe the character of your voice didn't match what you thought other people might be expecting from a lead singer? I think that might have been a little bit of it, but I think more of it was, in fact, it was that guy Tom Zito who had uh, produced the Esther May Scott album. We were doing a gig one time, and he made some kind of offhand comment, and he might have been serious, he might not have been. But it, it fueled my own insecurities about, you know, I never learned how to sing. I just kind of started doing it in high school. I had learned early on that attitude had a lot to do with yes, with uh, what you can put across as a singer. I don't know where my insecurities come from, but uh, I know specifically there was that one time where Tom Zito mentioned that I should let someone else sing. So as I had this deal in hand, it was uh, it was definitely the gauntlet had been laid down. I was like, well, you know, here here it is. This is what you told your mother you were moving to California to do, to make a record, and then you're getting a chance. And so, you know, um, and then so the the most fortunate part of it was, even though I had never heard of Buckingham Knicks. Um, and I was vaguely aware of Fleetwood Mac, but to me it was the Bob Welsh Fleetwood Mac and the, the jammy kind of psychedelic Fleetwood Mac. And at that point, I didn't think of myself as as that kind of writer. In fact, I thought of myself as kind of, a, you know, country rock. Maybe um, there was the coming of power pop at that point. And... Uh, I thought, well, yeah, this is kind of what I do. I think these are catchy kind of, you know, not not cheesy com- commercial kind of pop, but, you know, genuine uh, melodic songs with a beat. 
And so um, they said, well, no, here, listen to this <laughs> Buckingham Knicks album, which I did, and I and I immediately saw the kinship between what I was trying to do and what they were doing. I thought the album was a little bit overproduced in some points, but, uh, you know, I had been working with Annie McClune. Annie's birthday fell within like a week or so of Stevie's. Um, you know, my middle name is Lindsay. I mean, there were all these weird little things. Lindsay was inspired by Beach Boy and Kingston Trio, as I was. And it all just seemed like a good fit at the time. And in fact, it was. You know, my respect for what they had, their talent, translated into them telling me, well, you can do this. You, yeah, you can sing. Yeah, yeah, it's great do it you know and so I, I it really boosted my confidence when I needed it the most actually with doing the first record and uh, you know Andrew Lauder from United Artists offered me a deal for six sides you know three singles into A and B sides and you know mm -hmm. A and B sides but once we had Buckingham Knicks in the mix as it were um, Greg Lewick who was my manager made a deal with David Krebs, who were part of Lieber Krebs management on the East Coast. And he had good connections at Columbia because he was managing Aerosmith. And so uh, all of a sudden, the deal, you know, morphed into a six album deal at Columbia. The Birds and Dylan and, uh, you know, Paul Revere and the Raiders, they were all on Columbia, and so I was, I was happy to be on that label. So your second album comes along, it's uh, Not Shy, and you put this song out that it has this perpetual charm that seems built into it. When you hear it on the radio, I don't think anybody would ever do anything except turn it up. <laughs> it's just so good. I want to talk about what specifically is built into the song's DNA that has kept it popular for so long. There's a lot of little things. Well, of course, I have uh, tried to figure that out through the years. You know, it's like, well, if I did it once, how can I do it again? You know, there's always that element to things. But I grew up loving doo-wop music and the music of the 50s. Those were the magic words, doo-wop. That's what I was waiting to hear. Yeah. Oh, but by all means, you know, and when I finally got to do American Bandstand, I used to be a kid with uh, Dick Clark about that and Chuck Willis, who was the king of the stroll back in the day. And there's just something about that beat, that 6-8 beat with the double hit on the snare. And the guitar doing the arpeggio. Doom, 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 well, doom, sure, doom, that, that part too. But I think the groove of that, you know, that just uh, really appealed to me. Now I told you so you ought to know. I had been working on, on a song which was the one that, I mean, it turned into Magnet and Steel, but um, it didn't have those lyrics at that point. And, and I was struggling with the lyrics. I thought they were very pedestrian in, in what I had been working on. 
something about you know don't turn away now or something like that and uh, in fact i have a cassette of me just playing this for like a half an hour when i was writing it that i've, I've found and i have preserved oh nice yeah it's great to uh to see how how it got to where it went but the you know the specific moment of of it uh, getting that uh, that magic of course in the recording process having lindsay uh, along for uh, mm-hmm. for the production helped an awful lot with with getting the full sound that it that it eventually got and and the arrangement you know we all contributed things to that and and because i wanted that background kind of harmony um it just uh, turned into the the ooh part the three part ooh in the background um and through the years i've speculated is it the uh, toy piano is it the the background vocal is it the sincerity of my vocal is it the little falsetto thing i do for you But, you know, there's no discounting the fact that Stevie has a big part of, of its success. The fact that I wrote it about her, the fact that she sang on it with me, and just the sound of her voice on a record appeals to people. I have to believe that uh, that's what put it over the top. And in fact, I have been reluctant to re-record it, although people have appro- approached me about doing that. Because I feel so strongly the the background vocals are so important on that. To, in fact, I did do it once when I moved here to Nashville. I've done interviews with people and they, they praise the song and they talk about Stevie and everything. And then they'll put on this remake version of it. And I just I always go, oh, no. They don't even know. Yeah, it's, I guess they don't know. But I think most people do. But yeah, you know, it was it was Lindsay's idea to bring in a Chona toy piano, um, which I think just gives it that that glistening um, top end, um, mm-hmm. you know. And I had a great rhythm section of Mike Huey and John Selk playing drums and bass. But yeah, and the guitars. I don't know, you know, the the uh, the solo on that that I did was. Uh, in some ways a tribute to Dwayne Eddy. But yeah, you know, in the writing of the song, after I, you know, had those, the basic parts of the song ready to go, Stevie was doing the background vocals on my song, Tunnel of Love, um, which was on my first album. And I was, uh, you know, moved, let us say, by her performance that night. She does that banshee wail thing, and it was... You know, it was around the time that I had my most most close proximity with her, let us say. And on the way home, as I was driving back to Pomona, uh, this car, which has to be called a pimp mobile, which was like one of these Lincoln Continentals lowered with the lights underneath it and the diamond window and the fringe and pulled in front of me on the 101 freeway and, and I glanced at the license plate and it said, not shy. And from whatever reason, that was like the the spark that hit my rumination about uh, how wonderful Stevie was. And so I went 
from there to the half hour drive home and um, not quite sure how the magnet part of it came into it, but it did. Let's break a few of those things down. You said not shy, and that's one of my favorite things about the song. When you get to the part where the background vocals are singing along with you instead of just um, doing the ooze after your first lines, mm -hmm. you say, with you, I'm not shy. With you, I might try. As a songwriter, that just kills me because how can you get any more simple and still be surprising? Huh. It's such a good combination. I love that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Finding the right balance for simplicity is tricky, right? It is. It's hard to be simple, and it's a wonderful thing when you're able to do that. You know, I think of myself as a lyricist above all, and uh, sometimes I think the subtleties of my lyrics are lost to most of the people who listen, so I appreciate that, uh, that you picked up on that. And, uh, you know, countless times in bars when I've played this song, Oh, I know your song. Yeah, I'll give it. And then they come up and nobody ever gets those words right. <laughs> right. It's funny. Well, and the other thing is that it's it's not a dialogue because you are singing with them when you say, with you, I'm not shy. Mm -hmm. But then you sing alone. And so it seems almost like a call and response. Mm -hmm. You sing, with you, I'm not shy to show the way I feel. Yeah. With you, I might try. And then you've got a backward sentence that works because you're talking about a kind of magic, mm -hmm. my secrets to reveal. Backward sentences would normally be bad, but in this context, it's perfect. Even more ironic is the fact that I really am shy, and that's a whole other element to it. But, uh, you know, these things are hard to plan, you know. I mean, you can kind of recognize them as they come along. Sometimes you're surprised after the fact. But, you know, I, I always try to write and consciously, you know, maybe turn cliches around. I mean, I wrote a song, kind of a love song to money recently because it seems like everyone is in love with money and uh, you know money is the master money is the drug money is the candy you can't get too much of money is the bear you cross which when i when i came up uh, with that it was like oh this this is good you know yeah the cross you bear but the bear you cross in the monetary world it was it was all too perfect and of course nobody ever gets it but i have to tell you about it anyway because i know you like lyrics <laughs> absolutely so then you've got another thing that happens here is when the solo comes around you, you brought up the solo earlier you do something interesting because it's sort of the verse but not quite the original verse um you say now i told you so you ought to know and then the background singers sing ooh then you sing another line they sing ooh you do a third line, they sing ooh, and you say a tagline, a very short tagline, another really very strong part of the song, but that, that leads you into the next section. So you do the chorus, which starts like a pre-chorus. You could say it's a pre-chorus plus a one-line chorus, or you could say it's a chorus. Right. Which do you call it? I call it a chorus, yeah. 
I mean, when I when I presented that song to the band, you know, I I remember them going, "When is it going to change? When does it change?" Yes. You know, it has that thing where even I think one of the um, seems like the drums sound like they're about to do the change, and they then it isn't there. Um, mm-hmm. That's what I like about it. Yeah, well, it has a little tension because of that, and it uh, it it's just the way I wrote it, you know, and that. I always think of the fact that I'm kind of an unschooled musical person. You had had a lot of song experience before that, so you knew what to choose. You had good instincts. Well, thanks. <laughs> I think so. Um, so getting back to the solo, you, you start out with the low tremolo uh, doing the verse um, melody, and then they do the ooh, but it's one harmony, one of the vocalists. You do another line, two vocalists, another line, three. This is These are pretty obvious things if, to any listener. But it makes a difference because you're building. There's so many places where this song gains momentum. It gains mm. it from the verse to the chorus. It gains it there again, a new way. It's just really clever. Appreciate that, and I know you're a, a big bridge man, from what mm-hmm. I've uh, read. And of course, the fact that it doesn't nearly have a bridge is another element that I was thinking you were going to bring up. And you know, I'm I I love bridges when they work well, and when they're when they feel cliched, then I always kind of go, well, maybe it's better without them. That guy Chris Darrow, I was telling you about. I think I sent him Raw Elegant before it came out. And uh, his big remark was, "Not too many bridges in here, are there?" You know, so so I'm always very aware of that. And, and you know, a good bridge is usually the most memorable part of a song for me. You know, I think I've, uh, I've recently been getting into Lana Del Rey for whatever reason, mm-hmm. and uh, she has some bridges that just blow me away. When you did the title, "You're a Magnet and I Am Steel," that isn't necessarily the kind of title that you could tell a record company and say, yeah, I wrote this great song. It's about you're a magnet and I'm steel. <laughs> they would go, yes, that's a love song we could get behind. I know, so what, I know. But then again... What made you so sure that would work? Uh, well, I it, I have no idea. I didn't... I, I wrote that song because it was really important to me to, to try and impress Stevie with how much I mm-hmm. was in love with her. You know, truly, that, that's a lot of motivation for a lot of songs that get written, I think. But Did it work? Um, not really. I mean, we're good friends, and we've maintained it. But, yeah, no, it, it, uh, it wasn't uh, to be. It was honest, it was sincere, and it uh, was different. And I think in an era of disco and, and you know, you have to find some kind of a little niche that... Uh, that will set you apart, I guess. And, you know, too often that's, that's formulated and it's, and it's, uh, you know, 
it's not it doesn't come from the heart i guess i think i was just very lucky with it to coming out the way that it did i've always felt myself to be more of a rocker than a crooner and yet this was the song that stood out on the album to most everybody who listened to it and so we went with it and uh, and columbia did believe in it that uh, it was released i guess in march of 78 and it took till september to to peak and so it was around for a lot in that summer you know it was hard to avoid that song which you know was a curse and a blessing i guess <laughs> it still is and and not only is it hard to avoid on the radio you've got it featured in ads it's been in tons of movies and tv shows matthew sweet covered it for sabrina the teenage witch the album nice version of it yeah it is good he did it well and he had lindsay to help him out on that one too and i think wendy waldman played stevie in his version of it I like Matthew Sweet. I liked his music a lot, and uh, and I thought he did a heck of a job with the with the remake. But of course, the reason behind the remake was because New Line Cinema did not uh, want to uh, pay for the original version to be used three times in that movie, um, Overnight Delivery, which uh, it was actually written into the script for that movie. So it was. Uh, <laughs> It was kind of funny that he got Lindsay to do it and, and that it was somehow cost efficient for them not to pay for the original. So the original is in the first scene in that movie. And then each time it's played after that, it's his version. I think it was used later for Sabrina, but originally it was made to to be used in Overnight Delivery. And that was Paul Paul Rudd and Reese Witherspoon in that movie, which it's kind of a corny movie. <laughs> the songwriters don't care about that. We care about the, the check, right? Well, of course, well, of course. And, and, you know, kind of appropriate to that, as we were negotiating to have the three uses of Magnet in that, in that movie, they came out and they said, well, we'd actually like to use it in another one of our new movies. Uh, you may not want it to be in, it's a, Burt Reynolds R-rated movie, <laughs> and I said, "Well, I, no, that's fine. Let's do it." And that, of course, turned out to be Boogie Nights, yep. which probably boosted it way more than Overnight Delivery or Sabrina the Teenage Witch did. The night we never met with Matthew Roderick and Annabella Sierra. Yeah, but of course, that version in that was uh, done by Jeffrey Gaines, Deuce Bigelow, the first Deuce Bigelow, which I always like to say the good one. <laughs> um, that was kind of the love theme from Deuce Bigelow, which, you know, where he fell in love with a woman with a wooden leg. And he yep. discovers that she has a wooden leg. That's me singing in the background of that. Um, it was in uh, uh, This Is 40. That was, I guess, the most recent movie it was in. But it was also in that TV show, um, 
divorce, I think was you know Sarah Jessica Parker. And so yeah, I know, and it's a funny thing with these songs that uh, I, there have been times, you know, peaks and valleys in a life and in a career where we tried to promote it to, you know, advertising agencies or to a movie, you know, procurer who people who put the music in movies and everybody always looks says, Oh, that's a great song. Yeah, that's a great song. But it always gets these things on its own. It's just, you know, the Deuce Bigelow thing. I got a call from the production company saying, Oh, I'm so glad we found you. Adam Sandler really wants that song in the movie. And, like, oh, good. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's great. That's, that's good. That's good to know that as we negotiate. So you didn't have somebody seeking all these out. The song's popularity kind of made it happen? Yeah. That's great. Yeah, it's crazy. Your latest album is True Songs? Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, through the years after the, the major label releases have come and gone, I have never stopped writing, and I try to make the songs available as best I can. And being here in Nashville, of course, it's songwriter central in a lot of ways. You know, it's just a continuing story if you follow through all my other albums. They all kind of describe the uh, topography of my life through those years. And uh, True Songs was the collection and took about two or three years of doing a recording on that. And there are some on there that I think are very uh, meaningful songs. There's a song called Old Photographs, which I feel uh, has a lot of resonance. And whenever I play it live, I get a really good response from people. Oh, photographs looking at me, looking at you, right there on the desk, looking at me, looking at you, faces in a frame. What did they see? What did they do? Always seem the same Looking at me, looking at you Maybe you think we live on and on But old photographs are all we are when we're gone Topical, I guess, of songs on there is called Crazy Rain, R-E-I-G-N, which uh, conflates a bad rainstorm, which happens very frequently around here in Nashville, where it can be a beautiful day and then all of a sudden it's a torrential downpour, um, with, uh, with some of the political aspects of what was going on there. 
2016. There's a song on True Songs called Franz Klammer, which is a, a reference to a skier, an Austrian skier who was, I think, in 1976, in fact. And he uh, always looked like he was about to fall over, but he always wound up winning a medal. And I always thought that was a great metaphor for kind of living on the edge where it seems like everything's going to fall apart. And, and yet, if you stick with it, perseverance wins out. Well, perseverance is your middle name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Besides Lindsay, yeah. right? Indeed. Well, I appreciate that. You stuck with it. You, you I mean, this is many decades of uh, hard work. And uh, I think success is just not giving up, isn't it? A lot of times it's stay there. Keep doing what you're doing. Listen, learn, mm -hmm. and don't stop. Well, that's very true. And uh, you, but of course, you have to love it. And you have to believe in it, and you have to have a somewhat uh, thick skin in creative, you know, endeavors. I think more than anything, because you're putting yourself on the line. And love. <laughs> yeah, and love. I guess it's similar things. Yeah. Thick skin, right? <laughs> I think those are words to live by. Glenn Fry, when I moved to California, I was ready to join the Eagles. I told them, I know Bernie's leaving the band. I'm ready to join. And when I got there, Bernie was sticking with it at that point. This was before Felder, I guess. Mm -hmm. And uh, I met him at the Troubadour, and Glenn put his arm around me, and he said, man, listen, perseverance. You stick with it, I know you're going to make it. And, you know, I'd never forgotten that. Walter Egan, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you, Dave. Keep up the good work. Thanks. You've been listening to Songwriter Stories, Episode 18 with Walter Egan. There's more to this podcast than just the interview. For bonus content, visit songwriterstories.com and click on the Writer's Room link for this episode. If you like the show, consider reviewing us wherever you podcast. Your positive review will help other listeners find our show. That's all for now. I'm Dave Caruso, and I'll see you next time.